Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content, to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation, and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. This episode is also brought to you by an app that I created called Still Believe. Still Believe transforms a picture in your home into video proof of your child's favorite magical characters. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy, leaving money under their children's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film visual effects artists to transform your picture into video. Just tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the tooth fairy, then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes, and you can then save it to your phone and share it on social media. The app is available for the iPhone and Android, and it's free to download. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. Hey, everybody. On this episode of The Working Experience podcast, Maddie Kay interviews Nara Garber. Nara is a filmmaker living in Brooklyn, New York. She is the owner and operator of Lucky Penny Pictures, and she has some great insights into the filmmaking world. Enjoy. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on the... Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, Yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. Y'all need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. Just stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> They're moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was wow. living his toenails at the desk. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Hey everybody, welcome to the Working Experience Podcast. This is Maddie Kay, and I am honored and grateful to have on the podcast today, Nara Garber. Hello, Nara. Hey, Maddie Kay. It's good to see you after all these years, and I'm honored to be here. Yeah, uh, just to give our listeners a little background, I've known Nara since uh, 2000, probably 2006, 2007, somewhere around there. We were just reminiscing about a job we worked on together, which uh, was 
Very much an eye-opener for me because I hadn't done a lot of professional work as a grip. I was there as a grip, which meant I just kind of moved light stands around like a foot here, a foot there. Uh, so that's kind of, but we haven't seen each other, pro I don't know, 2007, what's that, 10 years probably, something like that. Let's call it 10 years. I think it was oh, actually okay. longer. <laughs> I, I was just able to anchor that year. It was 2005, I believe, because I met Chris Garifile, who was then your roommate. Yes. That same year, because I realized both of you were talking about having a party that seemed to be at the same intersection. Therefore, you must be roommates. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll get into this, but that, that conversation kind of led us to... Um, so Nara is a filmmaker. She owns uh, her own production company, Lucky Penny Productions. I said that right? The, the, I said that correctly? Lucky Penny Pictures. Lucky Penny Pictures. Um, we've interviewed, you know, I've interviewed actors on here and, and you know, people who have production companies up here and whatnot. Uh, I worked as a grip for about five years. Many people think filmmaking is very glamorous. <laughs> the red carpet the paparazzi and all that. Sometimes not so much. Would you say? Yeah, I would say I, I, these days I work pretty exclusively in documentary film and budgets are invariably tight and kind of in lieu of a red carpet, you find a lot of asphalt with sinkholes and massive potholes perhaps. Yes. Um, it's, yeah, the, the payoff is not the pay in the line of work that I have shifted towards in the years since you and I last worked together. Um, the, the rewards are, are found in, in the work itself, um, which if it, if it sounds like I'm rationalizing, there are nights that I come home from shoots and I say, there, there is a light at the end of this tunnel. This will be worthwhile. Um, right. But it is um, an often literally filthy enterprise. I come home dirty and bruised. Um, but often feeling as though I've had the extraordinary privilege of witnessing and hearing things that I would never have had access to otherwise. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And I can also I mean, say, yeah. Oh, go, no, ahead. go ahead. Sorry. No, go oh, ahead. I, I was going to say it's very different. When I started out, I did not start out in documentary film. I, you know, worked on some documentaries, but I think I was more interested in um, sort of pursuing a path that would eventually lead to writing and directing um, fiction feature films. And, um, and that's, it's, it's, you know, obviously all falls under the rubric of filmmaking, but it's such a different world. Um, in the observational documentaries that I prefer to work on these days, things literally happen in real time and you have the opportunity to capture them or you miss them because there's that one chance. And you've been exposed to um, feature filmmaking with a big crew, it's the, the antithesis of that. So it's been an interesting journey. Yeah, there's certainly a, a huge gap between like working on commercials, working on documentaries, working on television, working on feature films. It's just, it, they all have their own distinct flavor, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, I found working on TV, like Law & Order, that was, that was a rough 12 hours. Like you were usually moving a lot, you know? And then you'd work on a commercial where you would set up for an hour in the morning and you'd sit there for eight hours and then you'd break it down. It was great. Yeah, it's, and it can be so different even within documentary. I mean, yesterday I had a conversation with a friend about a project that's still largely speculative, but it sounds as though it may happen. And um, I'm not really at liberty to divulge any details, but we were trying to come up with a budget, sort of a day rate for... Um, the executive producer if this were to move forward 
And our understanding was that this was kind of an ancillary film attached to a book project that might or might not happen. Therefore, if we pitched a low budget, it would make it more appealing. And it was sort of of interest to us, but if it didn't happen, you know, no hearts broken. And so, especially because of the coronavirus, I was saying, you know, I could shoot and do lighting and sound by myself if we had a production assistant to help load in just to minimize the presence of people on set. And she would come as producer and could assist in some capacity. And then we found out the very first person that they hoped to interview is of such sort of global stature that there was no way this would be acceptable. The expectation would be of having, you know, wardrobe and makeup on set and having a wardrobe, uh, uh, you know, just have, having all the usual crew members one expects wow. to see and that having two paired down a crew might actually bring our credibility into question. So we ended up completely flipping the budget at the 11th hour. You can never discount people's egos. Yeah, and sometimes expectations, you know, it's like you you have to you have to honor them if that's the client or if that's the talent, even if they're not necessary. <laughs> so, <laughs> going back to technical things, I remember at the time we worked together, I would talk about this all the time. It's like you can get such beautiful light out of a $5 Chinese lantern that you could buy in Chinatown. Yeah. Um, and if you don't have to control the spill that much, you can get the same quality of light that you could get out of like, you know, a much more expensive you know, softbox. But it's not necessarily acceptable to bring a Chinese lantern onto a certain type of set or they'll think, you know, it's like, oh, they just don't own the right gear. And then once you've proven yourself and you're working at the highest end, you can do anything and they think you're being innovative. So it's sort of that weird it, middle ground. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how like um, things in the film world have a price tag attached to them. We're like, where is this? What's the rubric for this? Like, how did you arrive? Like a, you know the little scrims that go in the lights? Mm -hmm. For our audience, these are round metal mesh. It's correct? Kind of about like that? Yeah, and yeah. they I mean, they vary in size according to the diameter of the light. Right. But yeah. So this one was probably for 1K, so I don't know what's that, like eight inches, something like that. In that. Yeah. I, I lost one, so I had to pay for it $75. Like, how did you come up with $75? They could tell me anything. It could be a hundred. Could be two hundred. Could be five hundred. What? I don't know. No idea. So. Yeah, I I do a lot of my own miking on on micro crew documentary projects and the little windscreens that you would have to attach to lavaliers. Um, very often, you know, when we're done shooting for the day, I'll have some subject who's never been in a film before who unmikes themselves before I can say no 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 I'll do that and the windscreen goes missing. And you know the the cost of replacing windscreens, these teeny tiny little things that go on the tip of your teeny tiny little lavalier microphone, becomes a line item in the budget of every project by the end. I know. <laughs> yeah. You know they don't serve any other purpose, so no. you can charge a premium for them. No, you can't use a. Maybe you could use a scrim for a coaster or something of that nature. You could I guess. Strain pasta in it if it was a big enough I one. Could strain pasta in it, maybe. So, uh, apart from that, cutting down light. No, it really. Doesn't. Screen for very strangely shaped and sized windows. <laughs> so let me back up here a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How you got into film and and all of that? Sure, sure. I was an English major as an undergrad, um, and. You know, I, I read a ton growing up. I think I was probably a very, very well-read 10-year-old, and now I'm a very poorly read 50-year-old. I think I just, my, my reading plateaued at a certain point. But I was always really drawn to narrative. Um, I did a lot of photography. I, I loved photography. I loved music. 
And, um, you know, film had always seemed really interesting to me. I, I used to go to films and I would try to be the only person in a movie theater. I, I forgot about this. I'm thinking about this for the first time since my teen years. In high school, I would choose weird movies that were on their last legs were about to be pulled from the theaters and I would go to, you know, a, a Saturday matinee and um, I loved being the only person in a big theater. <laughs> so there that. were no distractions. Wow. Yeah. And um, so I always really, really loved movies, but I always felt that there were so many bars to entering that industry that you had to be well connected or you had to be wealthy. And I still believe that either one of those two is, they're both very helpful um, yeah. for entering. Um, the film world, but um, I guess at some point I had been working in education for a few years and I just kept thinking about film. And I thought, well, what, what's the harm in applying? And I researched Columbia in particular, which was then really known as um, primarily a writing graduate program in film. And um, I, my incoming class at Columbia was the first time we had a majority of people interested in directing rather than writing. But the clincher for me was I went and saw this one movie, The Double Life of Veronique. And I'm not even sure I would stand by its being an amazing film any longer, but it was by the Polish director, Krzysztof Kozlowski. And it was just so somehow atmospheric and evocative in ways that really integrated storytelling and music and just sort of incredible image imagery all operating on this concept of the the protagonist having a double and so there are these wonderful reflections and there were moments in the film that reminded me of things that I tried to do with black and white photography and I thought you know Eureka what's the worst thing that could happen I'll go into student debt again more <laughs> um, but let me give this a try and at that time I felt like entering film you, you really had two options you could start working as a production assistant on bigger shoots and work your way up or you could go to film school um, now equipment has the a lot has become much more democratized through the advent of digital video and affordable DSLRs and you can really and there are, I mean, people are distributing things online you can make movies without ever having gone to film school. You can make movies by teaching yourself how to make films and not necessarily crewing up and you know working as a PA for years before you get to do anything that actually feels like you're hands-on involved. Is that a is that a good thing? I think it's a, it's I think it's a great thing in many, many ways. It's harder as a filmmaker trying to sell films mm -hmm. or find distribution for documentaries because the whole explosion of documentary films means you're and, and the fact that so many people who once would have been limited can now tell their own stories. I think that's fantastic, but it's a much more crowded market. So even though there are more places right. that you put, you know, put a film online, right. there are thousands of more filmmakers out there um, making films, possibly making films on the same subject you are. And so it's, it's become much more competitive as well. So right. for a consumer, I think it's fantastic. For a filmmaker, um, it makes one have to think much more carefully about you know what the... Yeah end goal for a film will be i think the cream does rise to the top i mean there's a lot of you know youtube is filled with millions of videos you know most of them are kind of you know one-offs i mean they kind of have a quirky idea and it so i i, I understand i get what you're saying it crowds the market from a business standpoint it's kind of like oh god i'm competing with everyone with an iphone but you know, it's, I guess it's the people who stick with it who are going to be the more successful, I suppose. I, and, and then there are people who just break out, you know, yeah. and that which is which is fantastic. I mean, I've I've long felt that, you know, I've, if you go to a wedding reception, for example, and people are you're sitting with strangers at the table afterwards. And if there are attorneys or doctors there, 
it's hard as a lay person to necessarily understand what the intricacies of their work, perhaps. Right. <laughs> but it's like anyone can watch a film. I've, I've gotten some of my best feedback when I've shown documentaries in progress from people who have nothing to do with film, who are just ordinary smart people with a lot of common sense, where they're, they'll say that area dragged. I don't, I don't really understand why that's included in the film. And my film friends are missing that because they're fixated on some technical aspect of the film or a preconceived notion of three-act structure. So for that same reason, sometimes somebody will just make a film with no training and it's picked up by New York Times as an op doc or something. I'm, I'm speaking very much for the documentary um, yeah. world right now. Um, and that will launch them. And I don't begrudge them that. I think it's, it's very interesting to see how many different paths there are to finding an audience now. It is funny watching things with filmmakers and then it, the question, well, do you like it, kind of gets lost. <laughs> like, do you think it's funny or interesting? Well, this lighting over here, no one can, 99.9, they just want to see a good character. They want to see good yeah. movies. Yeah. Good, interesting. American movie. Remember American movie? Oh, my God. I love American movie. <laughs> Chris, so Nara and I have a mutual friend, uh, Chris Scarfile, who's been on the podcast, and he was my roommate for about six years. And we watched that so many times. He's friends with Mark Borchardt on Facebook. He, he texted me their last exchange. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, he wants, he's selling t-shirts for COVID-2. He wants to COVID-2. So, so you, mean, know who, you know who has Chris's old American movie DVD when he was getting rid of his DVD collection? I said, give everything else away. I'll take that. Yes. <laughs> and it's got the commentary track on it, which is just, it's amazing. And those guys are just the most amazing characters, those two. They, they really, really are. And I would probably, I'm, I'm terrible at top 10 lists, but um, if I were to have to construct a sort of top 10 documentaries that I think are worth watching for various reasons, that, that would definitely make the oh, cut. Um, I know. I know. You know what's interesting too? Amazing characters, but he sacrifices everything for filmmaking, like in terms of just pure love. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's extraordinary. Well, and you could speak to this with documentaries. What I found very interesting in the commentary was the two filmmakers were not focusing on Mark Borchardt. They were focusing on like seven or eight filmmakers. Um, but then they just kind of zeroed in on him and Mike Shank, his buddy, who's not a filmmaker. And it, it was interesting to me. And plus, they're shooting on film. I mean, trying to shoot a documentary on film. Yeah. Oh, my God. You just have to. You know, it's, films are so expensive. And, but, you know, if you could speak to that a little bit, like documentaries seem so hard because you got to let the story like take shape as you go. Yeah, and I, I should clarify just in terms of providing some context for um, where I fit into sort of the bigger picture. I feel like I have deliberately chosen a path that's kind of this outside orbit of, you know, people keep asking me, it's like, oh, you must have worked with so-and-so. I'm like, no, I know, I know their name or I met them once at a networking event, but but we haven't actually worked together. So I, I have chosen this sort of like outer path to things that has... Um, you wrote, wrote me back and ask your question again because I'm just going down a road here that's that has no end. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite serious. I'm like, tether me with your question one more time. Um, specifically with documentary. Oh, oh right? how do you 
Yeah, it's like the, the structure, like the, how the story takes shape. I, I think what I was gonna, going to get at is one of the things that frustrates me about how documentaries are funded is most people fund their projects by um, through grants or or pre-distribution. You have you have a pre, you know a sales arrangement with with Netflix or something like that, or you'll apply for grants from foundations. And in both instances, if you don't have a finished film to show and you're trying to raise money for seed money part of the, a grant application usually asks you to spell out in shocking detail what your film will be. You know, it's like, what's, what's the three act structure? Who are the characters? And, and so it's all sort of an exercise in writing convincing fiction because unless you're doing a historical documentary where you're really focusing on, you know, archival materials that already exist that you're pretty familiar with, if you're meeting people and following them, and especially with observational verite documentaries, you have no idea where the film will lead. You have to have some preconceived sense of what you're going out to get, or you have no motivation to take out your camera in the first place. But very often on your first day of shooting, you'll realize, oh, there's a whole world or a sidebar or you know, this, some, some issue that I have to consider that I wasn't even aware of before. And, um, you know, I've been now working in film, freelancing in film. I left my last full-time job 22 years ago. I've been working in documentaries exclusively for 13 years. Um, and I think I know that, that you can't know what your film will be at the outset. And I still keep having these very humbling experiences of like, oh boy, most recently with the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. I was um, directing the project that I'm ostensibly working on right now, but we've ground to a halt in Anguilla when New York shut down and my phone started going crazy with New York Times alerts about everything that was happening back here. And meanwhile, we were about to film the 30th anniversary of this reggae festival that my my subject had um, started. And um, the, the festival, which was not supposed to be an anchor part of the film, but was a necessary part of telling the story of this musician, um, just kind of fell apart and went completely crazy and then sort of regrouped in this sort of like kumbaya way at the end, but it's ended up being such a disruptive, there's no way to ignore what happened in the film. And so now it's a coronavirus documentary, like coronavirus shouldn't be front and center, but it's definitely something that will impact the telling of the story. And the fact that we no longer have access, if we decide that we want to finish this in a timely fashion, we won't have access to some of the people and places that we had anticipated incorporating in the film. Mm -hmm. So we're sort of restructuring as we go. Um, but, you know, as you were saying the, you know, with American Movie, they didn't know that those would be their protagonists. One of the earliest documentaries I saw before I was a filmmaker, where I learned of how things often get pared down um, to the core subject over the course of production was Hoop Dreams, which is really about two, um, you know, up and com coming wannabe basketball stars. They started with, I think it was 16 or 18 players. Um, with the idea of it being a much, you know, casting a much wider net. And then they realized the, these are our stories here. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's always, and I, I love that it's, there's always a learning curve attached to every project. It doesn't matter how long you've been making films. Um, and that's what I think keeps it perpetually interesting. So you referenced um, funding. So let's say Sarah James, she wants to shoot a documentary. How does she go about getting funding? Like, how does that process work or grants or however you do it? Oh boy, there, there's so many, I mean, it depends what her subject is. Like there, it's, it's changing so much now that I feel like 
you could probably get a, a better and more accurate assessment of the entire funding landscape from somebody who sort of works in as a producer more. I, I produce a lot of my own shorter projects, but um, very often the funding is already sort of in place for them. It's like a short documentary about a subject that is somehow commissioned by an institute or something. Um, but there, I mean, there's, Branded entertainment has now also branched out to kind of like branded documentaries where there's some, there's a brand that has some interest in furthering that. So there are all these sort of private sources of funding now for documentaries, which didn't used to be the case in quite the same way. Um, there you mean like are Netflix. I mean, Netflix will buy things, but sometimes if you're making a documentary about a certain subject, let me see, I'm not having any really good examples coming to mind but if it was something i've worked on a lot of projects having to do with healthcare, and then you always have to consider the strings attached also like maybe this manufacturer of you know something that applies to that helps people with the condition that you're making the film about um would be interested in putting in some funding but what does that mean that they're investing funding and does, does that tie your hands if you're right. then trying to sell it to public public broadcasting because will they think it's an endorsement of that project so it's 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 interesting. The, the pots of money have changed right. very much in the last decade. Um, and I think the, the nice thing about grants from, from foundations is that's, that's clean. You can, you know, if you get a grant from an established foundation, none of that, none of these questions and red flags will come up if you do try to sell the film later to an entity that scrutinizes such things. Um, and and a lot there's a lot of private money now. Also, I was just speaking with my sound, my regular sound recordist the other day, and he said he's worked on too many projects where some wealthy person has the idea to make a film, but not the discipline to necessarily. So the funding is actually in place, but the discipline and um, infrastructure is yes. not. <laughs> and and also so that's important. Yeah. Uh, also, Vera, I mean, I've worked on it couple of projects where he just it never got one was like a two million dollar feature film i don't think it ever got finished uh-huh oh dear and it's yeah. just like what the hell like what happened and we were just all over the place and um so just to get back to the documentary would you say that someone might film some of it on their own and say i kind of like this and then maybe take that to a pbs a netflix or who and like and then you mentioned like writing a proposal, which sounds what you were saying a little absurd because you're trying to map out a documentary. But but, but it's it's so necessary, especially for foundation grants. It's like very often um, the and and it's frustrating because there's no there's no template in place. So instead of just sort of writing your one grant proposal that you can pretty much recycle for every grant, it's something that you have to like sort of reconfigure um, for for yeah. each each grant um but um but yeah i think one like definitely what would you know having something to show having you know a sizzle reel i, I hate i hate that phrase. <laughs> 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 <But sizzle reel. laughs> have, having a trailer you know not something that's just you know like a two minute tease although if you don't have much footage you know that's having something that is you know like a seven minute um look at you know so that they can see you get get a sense of the flavor of what the film will be, even if it's stuff that you end up having to go back and reshoot because you're shooting yourself. Um, actually, let, let me rethink that. I'm not. If you haven't shot before, I would not encourage shooting your own trailer. <laughs> like it should look good. If you you first impressions, you only do have one chance to make a first impression. But if you can, if you have the opportunity to convey something that you would not be able to convey in writing um, about either the aesthetics of your film or the how fascinating your protagonist is or, you know, something that 
it's just not going to come across in words alone, then I think it's it's very advisable to, and, and some grants will require a clip, um, but it will only be serve you well to have um, shot and edited something substantial. So would it be a matter of somebody saying like, look, I've got this great idea, they go online, they try to find places that might be willing to give them money and they look at their parameters or what they want and that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it sounds like there's no one right answer or five. Yeah, there, right there, there really there isn't. And I went to um, the IDA, the International Documentary Association's um, last conference two years ago, and and it was it was interesting. It's like it made me feel it was really exciting to be there because so much had changed um, in recent years. But one of the things it made me feel like an old dog because there were so many new up and coming filmmakers who had pursued completely different paths to kind of get their foot in the door, um, which I think is very, very exciting. And at the same time, I'm like, how much longer can I stay in this game? <laughs> you know? is, there, is there still room for people like me? And that included have a, like an incredible burst of diversity among the filmmakers. One thing that used to bother me, and I'm sorry, I'm going off topic from the, how does one get a documentary started? Um, but I see this as all being somewhat interrelated. Um, one, one thing that was really, exciting for me to see was how many black filmmakers there were, how many black female filmmakers there were, how many Asian filmmakers there were, how every group, where there's so often our documentaries made about these dem different demographics, but they're, they've traditionally been made by white filmmakers. Yeah. Like now people can tell their own stories and they have the technical resources to do so and they have the support to do so. And, and that's another, you know, sometimes that for as a source of funding, there will be funding that is specifically for female filmmakers and there are groups for women filmmakers or there will be funding for, you know, first time black filmmakers. And I think that's all great because the landscape has only started to really welcome a diversity of fil filmmakers and everybody needs sort of that additional leg up and and having diverse filmmakers will only lead to better and more diverse storytelling. Um, so so it's like depending on who you are and what your subject is, um, how one can pursue funding can be very different. Um, a lot you can you can find out a lot just by searching things online. And if you can even tap into if you're a first time filmmaker, getting advice from somebody who is not a first-time producer will be invaluable. And, and yeah, that's yeah. There's a lot to navigate, you know, especially, I mean, I've done short films and, you know, basically you do a short film, submit it to festivals. If it gets noticed, somebody might give you money. It's a little more, it sounds a little more straightforward, I guess. Although I guess if you do a short documentary, I've seen festivals for that as well. Um, but I kind of forgot where I was going with that point. Um, with, uh, I guess with documentary, it did, it, yeah, trying to get grants and funding, like, I guess for a, a short fictional film, you wouldn't really go get a grant or something like that. I mean, I, I don't know, frankly. I, probably not, but they're like the Sloan Foundation has been giving out money for, you know, decades since I was in film school for um, films with some tie in to science. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that applies to documentary films and fiction films across the board. And so I do know people who have made short films that have been have gotten funding from them. So again, it's like these special interest things. It's almost like applying for college scholarships now. If you're if you're like a bass drummer in the band and you're from Alaska and your last name is this, you might be eligible for this scholarship. Right. Yeah. Some, some things Great. are so targeted to specific projects and specific subject matter. Um, 
And it's a lot, I mean, there's so much that goes into filmmaking that if you can delegate some of that to someone else who sort of knows the lay of the land a little bit, it will make your life immeasurably easier. Are you a fan of like Errol Morris's style of documentary filmmaking? You know, it's, it's, I'm, I like it. There's so many filmmakers whose work I like, and yet I would never make a film in that style. Um, right. Like I, I will sometimes get on a high horse and say that I hate reenactments, but Man on Wire is one of my favorite films of all time. And it would not be what it is if it didn't contain reenactments. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I, like w my own films are are so quiet and observational. Like if I could make a film while being completely invisible, um, I would. I don't like narration unless necessary. I'll never bring in an outside narrator to anything that I have directed. Yeah. Um, you know, if there's if there's, I'll use interview footage as voiceover, but um, but a celebrity narrator is anathema to how I make films. Um, so Errol Morris is much more like a fiction filmmaker, I think, you know, mm -hmm. the way he starts out his documentaries. Um, and there, there are other filmmakers, like I, I love Wiseman um, because I feel he's still, he's remained so pure, <laughs> but, yeah. but I, it's funny, the last film of his that I saw was actually at the IDA conference two years ago. And I remember just starting to watch it you know, like about an hour and a half in where you almost feel like you feel like you're watching things in real time because scenes tend to be really shot that way and not edited. Um, and I just remember starting to hear people shift in the audience. And this is a bunch of documentary filmmakers. So it's like if ever there's an audience for a Wiseman film, that would be it. But but they were demand a degree of patience that like nobody else can make a film like that and get away with it. Mm. Um, but you were you were asking specifically about Errol Morris, and I'm I'm jumping all over. The place. No, no, no. I that that's fine. I like to use it as a springboard. I just remember I was watching this behind the scenes of the making of the Thin Blue Line. Uh huh. Oh, how you can find on YouTube. Yeah, it was fascinating. He's a fascinating guy, Errol Morris. He's uh -huh. a really character, and he said he was trying to get funding for that. He went to PBS, and they finally said, "Look." We don't like any of your projects. <laughs> we don't like this project, and we don't like you. <laughs> and it was so like, but he just has this like he doesn't care. He does. He's yeah. like, whatever. And um, there's a scene where he's interviewing the guy on death row who actually committed the murder, shot the police officer. Hmm. So for our, our listeners, Thin Blue Line, one of the first documentaries to use reenactments. It got a death penalty case overturned. There were two police officers who were killed, man wrongly convicted. Um, so the guy who actually did it, David, he, he was interviewing him on death row. He was going to go back the next day. It was his last day. His camera broke. So he's like, what the hell am I going to do? Now, most other people would have just said, hey, look, you know, he went, he got a little cheap recorder. Remember those little micro cassette things? And he recorded the interview on that. And then he filmed the recorder. And he's, I thought, wow, I'm like, wow, that is brilliant. What a brilliant, this camera broke. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's, it's so funny. And that's, I think with documentary films, there's so many things like I can never work on, I, I can never watch something that I have worked on. And this is true in fiction films to an extent also, like, you know, all the craziness that happened, you know, outside of the frame yes. yeah. that's <laughs> necessary to make something very simple actually appear naturalistically on camera, but with documentaries, so often if you turn the camera around, there's a hilarious comedy, you know, going on to just make something happen um, and allow things to come together. 
And I can never watch a documentary that I've worked on for the first time with an audience without having to cover my mouth so that nobody will hear my laughter because yeah. there are things that are const that the audience believes were intentional decisions that were complete band-aids at the moment. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but that is such an interesting film to me because I saw that for the first time when... I can't remember if it was my freshman or sophomore year of college. Um, I went to Harvard as an undergrad and Errol Morris had brought Thin Blue Line to show to the law school, but I had seen a flyer that there was a free screening at a movie theater in Harvard Square for the law school. And I asked, can I go as an undergrad? And they said, sure, we, we didn't mean to make it seem as though it was only open to law students, but the Q&A afterwards, Errol Morris was there. Um, everybody else was a law school student. I think I just happened to be walking through the law school when they put up the flyers. And so a lot of the questions were, were sort of based less from a filmmaking perspective and more from a legal perspective. And here I was not a law student or a filmmaker at the time. And I was just um, so absorbed by something he had said about how he had gotten access to the files for everybody on death row. And I think he was friends with the DA or something. And so there was sort of like a kind of like, oh, let's drink some bourbon. Sure, I'll let you see this, even though you're probably not supposed to see this. And somebody had asked, um, was this an isolated case of wrongful conviction? Or did you feel like you encountered other people on death row who probably didn't belong to be there? And he said, oh, this was one of so many. There was so much sloppy legal work. And I, as an idealistic, I don't know, I think I was 18, 18 year old said, you know, raised my hand and said, well, don't you feel any other, you know, if this film exonerated this one person, don't you feel an obligation to go back and try to do something on behalf of everybody else who's ser serving death sentences unjustly? And he's like, I'm a filmmaker, not, yeah. you know, not <laughs> a lawyer, not, that's not, somebody should do that, but that's not my responsibility. And that has just always stuck with me. And I don't judge him for it at all because he is a filmmaker first and foremost. And obviously that's something we need to tackle as a society, but it was just in terms of what didn't make it into the film, it was very interesting to consider. Um, Editing a documentary must be, I mean, even, you know, like with fiction films, you, and I, I, I've heard these stories on the most professional sets. I mean, to, I have a, a friend who's really moved up the ranks in the Peter Berg films. He was in the background and he, he had a featured part in Spencer uh, Confidential. And he said all, all kinds of money. Mark Wahlberg's in it. They get in there. They're like, nope, let's move this around. Like things just change. And this is scripted shot listed there's call sheets there's and it everything changes all of a sudden it's like flipping around he said he his name's brandon turned to brandon and he's like you think he could do these lines yeah okay get him in get him into all of a sudden he's an fbi agent and he's like <laughs> okay here we go you know and he was ready to go and that's why he's but it's amazing how how that happened and so with documentary that it seems the whole nature is like what did you just say like oh yeah yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's funny when there, there are documentaries that you know, sometimes you would never know from watching the film. Sometimes you can actually see the moment where there's like the switch from the film that the filmmaker thought they were making to whatever they... Oh, what was that movie? Um, Capturing the Freedmans. Did you see oh that? Oh, my God. No, yeah. Capturing it's like the, the Freedmans. Started out being about the most successful uh, party clown in New yeah. York City and then becomes yeah. the darkest story of a family unraveling ever. And I remember watching it and feeling like I could see the moment in the interview with the mom when, when it's like, oh God, this is not the movie I'm making. <laughs> I, I went and watched that in a theater, thank God, at the Angelica. And I then thought, you know, I think it came out on DVD. 
I couldn't watch it again. Uh-huh. And like that's that is one of the most powerful documentaries. It is so upsetting. And, and I've like, only I, seen it once also, but it's right there at the front oh, of my mind. <laughs> oh my God. I know. Yeah, that he was interviewing like the party. And all of a sudden the guy's like, wait a minute, you can't da da da. And apparently the filmmaker was like, What are you talking about? <laughs> and yeah. all of a sudden it became, yeah, what it was. That is a very, very powerful. So powerful, yeah. I I was so uns- I'm like, I don't need to watch this by myself. I can't. <laughs> like this is just, you know, so upsetting. Uh yeah, yeah it's an amazing, you know, when you said about what's outside the frame there i worked on a lot of low budget features you know hundred dollars a day whatever and it, so many times we'd be like this isn't even the fun stuff here film the production crew and what's exactly. going on exactly whenever something is under resourced it's always funnier to see what's not on camera <laughs> i remember this guy this pa we showed up at a location i opened up the back of the grip of the grip electric truck like, why is it so bright in here? He had driven the truck under a bridge that he wasn't quite supposed to and can opener Oh, God. Top of the truck. So I thought, okay, this is terrible. We're going to have to unload the truck, get a new truck. No, no, no. We just tied a tarp over the truck and used it for the next two weeks. It's like, is anyone filming this? Did anyone get this? Well, I I have a much younger friend who just discovered and watched Living in in Oblivion for the first time and talking to her about it. I I haven't watched it again. I'm so afraid it wouldn't stand up, but she loved it. She thought it was the funniest thing she ever saw. And I I remember having to explain to my parents, this is not an exaggeration. (laughs) This is is how silly, how ridiculous low-budget indie film production gets. You know what I always loved in the low-budget indie, maybe week two, uh, someone would show up on set and start being like, well, why is this? Why?" Is and I'd be like, who is this guy? <laughs> like the associate producer, meaning they were a friend of the director who was hanging around and now asking me a bunch of questions. I'm like, I'm sorry, who is this person? Like, what, <laughs> what is going on here? Every time, every time. Yeah, it's sort of like a stock character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like Steve Buscemi, when you say, he he turns to somebody, he's like, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? It's some poor PA or something, I don't know. Yeah, and also you could see like we would have bottled water and crafts. If you ever want to see how an indie feature is going, look at the craft service table. Bottled water, stuff first week. By the time you're getting to the gallon jugs of water, and the same muffins that have been there for the last three days. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first feature I ever worked on, um, I remember the first lunch, we we got chicken pad thai or vegetarian pad thai. And that seemed great. Mm-hmm. And then we realized that the caterer had gotten stiff. He was um, promised a certain budget to work with. And then they like cut it in half at the last minute. And he had figured out that pad thai was the most cost effective thing he could make in the quantities that we needed. And every meal was chicken pot. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, what should I have today? Hmm. <laughs> I'm totally dating myself, but this was like 1996. I was still in film school. Um, and we were and we were shooting out of this warehouse in Greenpoint. And at that point, for three dollars, you could go get a very filling, a substantial Polish lunch. Greenpoint was all Polish back then. And so the number of people who actually ate the catering 
just diminished. You know, the, fir the first week there were long lines and by the end it's like the food would come and everyone would just scatter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's amazing though, because, you know, I, I was a teacher for a number of years and I started working in film. The fact that you even got fed on set, to me, I was like, wow. I mean, how many other professions does that happen in? Very few. I know, that's what, and when I was in film school and not feeding myself, that, that seems, yeah, it seemed like, oh, yeah, you're paying me a little, little bit on the side. This is a good deal. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd work on, I remember I, I would have a number of days on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And the food spreads, I mean, they'd come around, we'd have breakfast, we'd have lunch. They'd come around with another meal of like shrimp scampi. And guys would complain. Oh, it's food, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know, construction workers don't get this. People who clean motel rooms, they don't get lunch. Yeah. And there's and no talking about that. that. I mean, that's like a, a non-film, although there, there, I think there have been some good films about this, or there's some in production, but, but food salvage, food rescue is like an issue that's dear to my heart. And our mutual friend, Chris Garifile, has yeah. um, told me that there, there are a couple of services that will try to make sure that the uneaten food that is sanitary yeah. does not go to waste because there is such overfeeding on so many you know big budget sets yeah and I mean, doesn't happen, I, doesn't happen on, on low budget documentaries uh no <laughs> no we have coffee and a bagel oh, we're down to the last cliff bar we can share this cliff bar <laughs> cream cheese yeah, what is this this is not uh netflix there guy you know come on settle down um so what it just to kind of wrap up here, uh, this has been, I could go on and on for hours about this because I, I love, you know, I just read a great book about the history of documentary filmmaking from like before time. And I'll, I'll take a picture of it and send it to you. Yeah, it talks about a lot of the same issues and it makes me think of what, because um, some of the issues were like, and I, I thought of it when you were talking about the more diversity of filmmakers at, at the convention you went to. Um, and it, it was very interesting because nobody knew what to do with documentaries in the beginning. And it was sort of like, is this exploitative? What role does the filmmaker have? Uh, voiceover, narration. I mean, there are so many schools of thought on that. Some yes, some no. So I was wondering, like, what... Uh, First of all, like what a, I mean, I think anybody, you know, if you grow up in the suburbs, you grow up in the city, you're, you're bringing all of your life, your, your 22 years, your 30 years, whatever, to whatever you do, you know, that's the lens you see the world. And you, you can, and hopefully people do by travel and things like that. They, they under, they get more lenses. I'll get off the lens metaphor in a second. <laughs> uh, but how you, because you talk about your documentary film styles being observational, um, you know, how much does a person's background, do you think, impact, like, two people shoot the same documentary, they come from very different backgrounds, are we going to get two different documentaries? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's true. Um, you know, you have the same footage and you have two different editors, they're going to edit very different documentaries, depending on their perspective, when you're working sort of an unscripted um, nonfiction. Um, I think that's very true. Um, I know that I, um, I do a lot of shooting for hire for other documentary filmmakers and what they want me to focus on. Sometimes I've had wonderful relationships with, um, with directors. And when you're doing verite, 
you know, truly observational shooting, the director can't, sometimes it's, not, it's better for the director not even to be in the room with the subject or, you know, in the, so that, because I might swing around and accidentally capture them. And so there has to be some trust there, but sometimes people want to fixate on something that I think is much more superficial than another story that we could follow. Um, and so I've, I've definitely had that tension, you know, on sets when I'm working for hire for somebody else as well. But I think, um, and, and it's, it's one of those interesting things to think about as truly deeply happy as I am that there are now, for example, indigenous filmmakers telling their own stories because they are going to get access and have a basic understanding that will not lead them to go down the wrong path, which I think a lot of filmmakers filming in other cultures do sometimes do. You have a false set of assumptions that you hold on to a little bit too long. Sometimes it's advantageous to have somebody from outside that culture because if you want an audience outside that culture, they'll have a little bit more detachment. You know, it's it's interesting. I think it's good to have diversity even within crews for that reason. So you can have a sounding board where at the end of the day, when you finally are collapsed at the motel or whatever, you can talk things through and maybe say, oh, well, I would never have known that. Like this needs further explicating because nobody outside of your yeah. tribe will understand that or no, no one who hasn't grown up in Detroit will understand that. Um, right. So, so it's all, it's, um, it's really interesting. I think what I try to do very hard with my own projects is take my preconceived notions and leave them behind at the beginning of the day. And you know, while si simultaneously being aware of, you know, like time and scheduling and if maybe we have to be out of here by then, but it's like, if we suddenly are leaving something too early, maybe I can call ahead and cancel something that we had scheduled for the afternoon. Or maybe we totally change the schedule for the following day to follow up on something that I had no idea we would stumble upon. Um, and I think humility is incredibly important in th this type of filmmaking, um, which is antithetical to, say, a Michael Moore documentary, which is all about his personality and, you know, it's a much more dogmatic style of filmmaking. And there is space within, like, when people talk about documentary filmmaking being a genre unto itself, it's like it's absurd because there's so many different types of documentaries. You know, you've got... Errol Morris is a very stylized filmmaker. You've got Werner Herzog, where his personality tends to trump whatever it is he's making a film about. <laughs> and right. then, like you know, people like Michael Moore, who have you know, are, are beating a drum very loudly. And um, did you ever see Camera Person? No. Oh, I I recommend. It. I mean, some people might hate it. Some people might think it's too slow. I saw it the night after the 2016 election with, it was a free screening for IFP members down in Dumbo. And it was raining that night and it was raining in all of our hearts. You know? <laughs> yeah. and I would yeah. say maybe, maybe six people showed up and we all sat really far apart from one another because I think everybody knew that they were just gonna sort of quietly weep during the film. But in some ways it was the perfect antidote to that moment in that it's made by a documentary shooter, a camera woman who has done this for a really long time, and I cannot believe I'm blanking on her last name right now. Kristen, we'll get back to that. You can insert that in the transcript. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, oh my goodness, I'm gonna Google that on my phone while I'm talking to you. But she has been uh, sort of a verite cinematographer for a really long time, and I sometimes would try to explain to people how much I love my work in that arena, and I'll very often shoot my own films as well. But the privilege of being a silent observer in people's lives is unlike anything I've 
experienced elsewhere in life. And I think um, it's sort of the opposite of like the noise of today's social media where people retreat to their corner and loudly, you know, it's like, oh, that's what you said. Well, I have to have the final say, like you're not saying anything. You're being completely quiet. And if somebody has agreed to participate in a film, you know, somebody who's never been on film before, once they cross that line and say, okay, I'm gonna welcome you into my life. If you will hang out long enough that they almost forget you there, that you're there, or that you become sort of a part of the family, you see things that you would never see or be told or be privy to as a dinner guest, or even as, I've heard so many people talk about things that they've not told their family members. Um, and there's just a, a sort of a trust that you form with that person, or if they've decided this is the time to tell my story, there's kind of an awareness of the legacy they're leaving by allowing this to be recorded. And it is truly such a privilege and such an honor and such an intimate gesture that seeing her film, which was strung together by outtakes from these films she had worked on over the years. So it's, you know, there's international footage. It's all very, very intimate, incredibly, like, I don't know, you just came away feeling that she's truly a citizen of the world, which, the day after the 2016 election was like a nice thing to <laughs> sort of like sink into. <laughs> and and I think that's yeah. the greatest reward of my very lo often low paying work is is getting to, um, yeah, just bear witness kind of to people's I lives. I think that's a, that's a lot different than, I'm always suspicious of agendas, even in fictional work. Uh, the film that always springs to mind is... Um, Ed Norton, uh, he's the Nazi skinhead. I can't remember the name of it now. Yeah, I didn't actually see that film, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I thought it was it was sort of a B movie issue, uh -huh. but I'm like, I get it. Racism's bad. Like I, you know, you don't need to like hit me over the head. The, a little more subtlety, because that's generally not how it's not swastikas tattooed on people. So I've always been kind of suspicious of agendas. Like Michael Moore, he comes with an obvious agenda. He's got a point to prove, and he's going to prove it. My, and I am probably on the same, well, I would definitely say I'm on the same political end of the spectrum as him, but I'm always a little like, okay, I don't know if that's the, whereas what you're talking about and your genre, if you will, need, requires a lot more patience, like of letting people come out and tell their story, you know? As much as possible. And then where that falls apart a little bit is in the edit. And I struggle a lot with the ethics of editing, which you have to make, you're making editorial choices. So you're yeah. trying to let people tell their story to the best of their, you know, as much as possible, but you're automatically shaping it, you know, just by, and then, it, I mean, it's interesting. It's like a little over, I guess it was almost 10 years ago, we finished up a film on the impact of deployment and multiple deployments on military families. And there were so many young kids that we filmed for a little over a year, and then it took you know another two years to finish the post-production of the film. And these kids would go back and look at the film, and that's their memory of that period of when their dad was deployed or when this was. Mm -hmm. It's it's like they're going to remember what they've seen in the film because their families all had the DVDs. And it's like I almost feel like I need to <laughs> rebut that with, but this also happened, and that right. also happened. And just because we put this before that in the edit doesn't mean it was as cause effect. As it seems, <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, so it's really interesting, and and it's like an, an example of of just how editing changes the how profoundly it affects the uh, perceptions of the viewer. Um, 
was like to remove the option of editing. I went to a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests for um, for five weeks. I almost went out every single day, and I wish I could have continued to do that. But just I realized I am completely, you know, leaving professional responsibilities by the wayside. And well, I need a to little, a little background for our listeners. That's why I thought of you to do uh, the podcast because I was like, oh, geez, she's out there right in the middle of all this. Well, let's talk about filmmaking. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Because for me, it's like, at first I was just shooting clips on my phone. I decided I was not going to go out with a real camera because then I'm going as a filmmaker and less as an observer participant. I mean, just with, with a professional camera, I'd be toting lenses along. I'd have extra gear. I'd be you know making sure that I'm safe, you know, because I don't want to damage equipment that costs thousands of dollars. And I thought, I'm just going to go and bear witness with my iPhone. And I was shooting clips and uploading them at the end of the day um, or not. And then I realized I'm editing. You know, it's like I'm being pissed off by these younger millennial protesters who are giving cops the bird. And so I'm not shooting them. But that's happening a lot, you know, and maybe I'm, you know, this is not a true. If, if what I think I'm doing is bringing some truthful representation of what's happening on the streets of New York City to people who can't see that, I shouldn't edit that out. And and then I was really forced to change my style because I ran out of storage on my phone and just didn't have the time to dump everything every night. So I started live streaming. And the second I started live streaming, I thought it's like my in interior voices just went totally out of control because I couldn't edit. I was committed yeah. to shooting in real time, whatever was happening. And if something that I totally didn't approve of happened, it's it's going on too. <laughs> and so, so that just you know, it actually made me think quite about a, a bit more about things I've always thought about, but just you know, the role editing plays and how it conveys things. And sometimes you would see the shift. Like there was one skirmish at um, shortly after the occupation was set up at City Hall, where things had the potential to get violent. And I was about to come back to Brooklyn because I had to be back in Brooklyn by seven. And then I thought, oh, something could happen. And maybe I actually need to capture this on film because everyone's so involved. I'm not sure anyone else is filming. And if this is needed as evidence of what actually happened later on, I can sort of, I understand what you see in a wide shot that you don't see in a close-up. And I can show, you know, how this unfolded. And and so I am shooting sloppily live, in, you know, live streaming, but with kind of a, something in mind as to this is the information you get from the shot, which maybe your average person who's never made a movie wouldn't be thinking of and would just try to get the close-up of, you know, the cop yeah. or, And so I really saw the shift. Something happened, and I hadn't seen the provocation where suddenly all the protesters in the Occupy City Hall encampment shifted out onto the street. And then suddenly it was sort of blocking all the, the access to the Brooklyn Bridge, and it was sounding like it was going to get physical, and this group was yelling at that group, and then it moved back into the plaza area. And then the leaders of the Black Lives Matter protesters and the ser sergeant in char charge of the police, there was a recognition there. It's like, you're in control of them, and you're in control of them, and they started making eye contact and kind of talking to each other, and then you saw everything diffuse, and I thought it was over, and then it cropped up again. But it was just so interesting and if I had cut any of that, it wouldn't have made sense. And it was interesting even for me to go back and watch. And actually, when I wasn't sort of, you know, like navigating, it's like, am I in a safe place? Can I be here? <laughs> you know, yeah. just to watch it afterwards, I was like, oh, that's what happened. And so so it's just, it's it's interesting. Once you edit something, you're choosing how the story is seen. And well, to go back, what you said, you know, Errol Morris's response was to you about, you know, you're like, when you go back and try to overturn these other cases, he's like, that's not really my responsibility. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess a documentary filmmaker, you have a responsibility in the editing room, like, do I cut this? Like, this person's telling this story. If I cut it here, the story sounds this way. If I let them go, 
or do I provide this person with a response to that? I mean, I think you saw the documentary Dig. Do you ever see that? I actually have not seen Dig. It's on my list of films oh, I should have seen. Yeah. Like Anton Newcomb, he's the lead person of uh, Brian Jonestown Massacre band. Great band, great documentary, but he had a real problem with the way he was portrayed. Uh -huh. He was like, I mean, it showed him as like a heroin addict. And what he's like, I've been clean from heroin for years. Mm -hmm. He comes across like a loon. I mean, uh -huh. and I think he kind of is. He's a genius. So I guess you run that risk of somebody being like, hey, I mean, you put that in there, but I said this later. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. what happened to that? <laughs> or, yeah. you know. And people, people have very different relationships, like ways of handling that. Like some people will demand the right to final review, some documentary subjects. It's like, yeah, you can film me and I'll sign this release, but I want a clause there that says I can see the film before and, and nick things if I don't That's feel I'm represented well. Yeah. Um, and I would not, I have never allowed that. Uh. <laughs> I, but, but I have told people, I mean, I feel like there is such a trust there. Um, I mean, we had in that film about military families, we had um, this woman who I love and I'm friends with to this day, her marriage fell apart over the course of the film. And we thought we were done filming with them. And then we found this out and we went back and filmed with her and her, um, her husband whom she had just separated from. And it was going to be very difficult for her you know, and, and she, we just had, we went to dinner and we just had a long, long talk about how this, you know, how she actually felt about that. And she agreed to let us, you know, use that any way we would. And we just said, we, we will honor your story, hmm. truthfully. And that was the best we could do. And, yeah. and she was okay with that. But it's um, the, the film that is stalled that I'm working on right now is about a sort of a much lesser known kind of lunatic musician in Anguilla who is, that's part of his personality. He's just, he's stoned all the time. <laughs> he does have a very, very much an outer body awareness of, of yeah. who he is also yeah. and sort of function within that. And, and the first shoot with him, he was very much trying to direct. <laughs> he was like, I'll sit here and you'll, you'll, and, and that, that was kind of great because he does try to craft his own story so much that that's a part of who he is. So we captured that, but it's, I, for the first time in a long time, I was working with a DP and, and directing and not shooting initially. And I was like, no, no, you don't wait for him to say, now shoot. You've got to be shooting all of that. That's it. I, was like, I can't believe I have to explain that. <laughs> that. That's part of it. Yeah, like that's part of the guy's whole personality. Exactly. Like he's climbing up on a piece of farm equipment. I was like, no, you get all that. He's like, okay, now I'm ready. You know, it can't. <laughs> I've often thought the most interesting documentary subjects are A, people who don't want a documentary made about them, like the guy in Capturing the Freedmans. Or B, guys like that who do, but you're capturing this whole other thing. Like, they're not aware of, like, how they come across. That's the, that, to me, is, like, very entertaining sometimes. And, and the good thing in this case is he has enough of a sense of humor about himself that it's, like, I don't feel like it will be a betrayal when all right. that the film. Like, I think we will find it funny. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and he has many, many, many children, and all of them have said he's very controlling. And I was like, oh, I'm fully aware. <laughs> he has been trying to control this documentary from day one. <laughs> um, but did you ever see The Wonderful, Terrible Life of Lainey Riefenstahl? Sort of no, but she comes up in that documentary book I was just talking about. Oh, it, yeah, as, as she deserves. I mean, it's like atrocities in, on her record, absolutely. But she was a brilliant filmmaker also. and. And in this documentary that I saw a bazillion years ago, um, 
it's it's great because they're the filmmakers have set up the shot of her at one point and she's like a hundred years old. I mean, she's in her late nineties at the time that they're filming her. And she just starts yelling at them. She's like, why would you put the camera there? This clearly is not the background. You should have the mountains in the background. Ah! You know? And and they accommodate her request. But of course, they included that in the film because it's so telling. Her, uh, I mean, apparently her filming of the Olympics is one of the most brilliant pieces ever. It was camera like, positions brilliant... that nobody had done before. And yeah. are still replicated in Olympic coverage to this day. Yeah. And, and then she, there were also failed efforts. Like she, she attached. She apparently had such an unlimited budget from Hitler that she was attaching film cameras to like helium balloons and launching them off in case they happened to get, you know, yeah. good aerial footage, which they didn't. But with notes saying, "When found, please return to thus and such productions." Um, well, they so described setting up the Nuremberg Festival shooting, where she's up on cranes. She, I mean, things nobody had ever done any of this before. Yeah. No, so she was she was completely visionary and unfortunately morally <laughs> highly suspect. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. It was like, you know, she's got this opportunity. She's not I didn't get the impression she was really a Nazi. It was sort of like it's here. But like, but it's one of those things, you know, like as as I said, it's one of those reasons I think that, you know, PBS will scrutinize your funding trail, you know, streams and all that, and just, um, you know, what strings are attached and what does it mean today if you're making a film and you get funding from a certain- Rightfully so, and, and yeah. right, I mean, as long as, I think as long as everybody's above board on it, fine. Because then you can say like, oh, you're being sponsored by Philip Morris? Hmm, maybe this will have a certain slant to it on smoking and- Yeah, yeah exactly, like and, and, there's, and there's plenty of that that you see. Um, just, just talking about Thin Blue Line made me think it's like, and I am not the person to speak to speak about how one funds a documentary. There are people who could speak to that much more extensively in greater detail. But um, but thinking there are also people who will go for funding, or sometimes sometimes a documentary will originate with something like the Innocence Project. You know, if there's somebody who if there's an organization that's very interested in the subject matter of your film, it doesn't have to be a corporation. It can be an organization with a similar agenda that will sometimes partner with filmmakers also. So it's they, everything is on the table these days. I mean, I guess you'd love to find somebody who says, look, here's $5 million. You, you film whatever you think is great and you edit it together in a two hour documentary. It'd be like, no agenda, no strings attached. Nope, you go. Maybe that happens, you know, I mean. I mean, I mean it's like <laughs> people do find sugar daddies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, right. There's probably always strings and something. Then there are still just weird. There are weird patrons out there. You know, I've yeah. Um, yeah it's like I, I have a couple of friends who have had films pro uh, funded in irregular ways without ramifications. So. Well, the disaster. Have you seen the Disaster Artist? No. Do you have Netflix? Yes. Okay. Oh. Maybe tonight. Oh my God! <laughs> it is. I, I really like James Franco. I was not very familiar with Dave Franco, but they're both in it. It's a uh, true story. It is a true okay, I, story. I wasn't even, it wasn't even ringing a bell and now I'm realizing I, I read about it. I, yeah, I know, I've never seen Dave oh Franco. Oh my God. Um, I mean, we, we all would want to meet this guy who James Franco plays. Like you, you just, it's like, oh my God, I've met the person who just, it, it's, it is amazing. And it's kind of what you're talking about. But uh, yeah, it, it's funny, like going back to the Lainey Rice and Rice, I'm, I'm mispronouncing Reef and Saul. You know, it, it comes up frequently with people like Roman Polanski, Kevin mm -hmm. uh, Spacey, when he was on uh, on trial. I mean, I guess he was found not guilty, but 
it is interesting when it's like, geez, I really don't find this person to be a good person or they have their baggage or whatever, but damn, they, they get good shots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that what complicates it further with Lainey Riefenstahl is what she, she made so much propaganda for Hitler. I mean, Triumph yes. of the Will is, is gorgeous and all of those camera angles and all that innovative camera work that she brought to it it is glorifying these Aryan athletes. And so it's um, it's that much more complicated when the brilliance is brought to that messaging. <laughs> but now we've gotten to the point where they tossed kindergarten cop out of a, a drive-in festival. Oh, oh. And so I'm like, all right, guys, I what other people call political correctness, I generally call decency, just being a good person. And you would say standing for the Pledge of Allegiance is also political correctness. So I don't like all that hypocrisy. However, I'm not sure kindergarten cop is going to poison the mind. I mean, is this where we've gotten to? No, and, and it's like, I really wonder, it, it gets truly, truly, yeah. Hilariously absurd. No, oh, like, absolutely. This is, this no, is it's really... like we're basically living in a satirical society. <laughs> but I'm also like, of course you shouldn't show it. It's a terrible movie. Like, it's what are you crazy? I mean, you're like, banning it for the wrong reasons. But then there are hilarious things. Like, I have I have four stepchildren. This is the one year they're all teenagers, and I have accidentally I've learned not to pull out some John Hughes movie and show it to them on a rainy day because I remember it as being you know good frivolous carefree fun. <laughs> Yeah, I know. And then you're I like, remember that there are bare boobs filling the screen and sixteen candles a few minutes I know. in. I <laughs> I know. I know. Hong Kong song is always preceded by. Dee, 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 dee. I mean, so there are <laughs> there are films that that bear some reexamining <laughs> with a different lens, but <laughs> a different lens. Yeah. And what was it? Well, Spike Lee was talking about a movie. That, you know, they stopped showing Gone with the Wind. I, I don't even know who was interested in watching that movie anymore. And he was talking about a movie that's recently been banned that he shows. Oh, no, it was um, not Triumph of the Will. It's the American version of that. Birth of a Nation? Birth of a Nation. And he, he shows that in his classes at NYU. And he's like, why? What do you hope? To, and this is Spike Lee. The man has a lot of credentials, I would say. Yeah. And he's like, what do you hope to accomplish by banning this movie? I mean, and, you know. And this, this is where I think context, you know, it's like he as a filmmaker is going to do things differently. Having Birth of a Nation shown by Spike Lee, who has done so much. I mean, if you if you're if you've seen any of his films, that's going to obviously provide a context for watching Birth of a Nation that is very different from having, you know, a a white filmmaker. It's like even even that comes into play in terms of like I think they yes. are showing Gone with the Wind now. It's just they're framing it. Yeah. And so Spike Lee in that case are you know automatically provides a framing that will guarantee a broader understanding of. If you're showing Birth of a Nation at the VFW in Biloxi, Mississippi, that probably, it, it might have a different uh, <laughs> connotation than NYU Film School with Spike Lee, yeah. But he's like, you know, I use it to show shots and things like that, but also the propaganda elements to yeah. it. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. I, I completely yeah. agree that banning, making something of that verboten and not being allowed to show it also is just denying a part of our history that it's very important to learn about and learn from. Um, As you say, and I remember um, uh, an African-American politician in uh, uh, 
Alabama or one of the southern states where they're taking down the statues. He said, well, put them in a museum. museum. Give them their proper context. Absolutely. It's like we, yeah, it becomes, give, make it an educational tool. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Spike Lee and films that do and do not hold up, um, last summer I went to a 30th anniversary screening of Do the Right Thing. And, but for the fact that Radio Rahim is carrying a big boom box that you would not be likely to see, you know, in 2020, it holds up incredibly well. Yeah, yeah. I know it's amazing that uh, movies like that, you know, you, yeah, all the same issues, same tension. All the same issues, unfortunately, yeah. It's 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 sad that it holds up so well, perhaps, but um, yeah. but yeah. Um, he had an interesting journey because uh, a friend of mine worked for him when he came back to Brooklyn because you know he had done Twenty Fifth Hour, he'd done a lot of big Hollywood movies, and apparently he just didn't like it, so he came back and he was working on smaller budgets and smaller crew and uh you know he, my friend actually spent a lot of time over at his production office in greenpoint and said yeah i, I guess he just didn't like it he just you know he's like i want to make my own movies mm-hmm. you know and when you're getting 30 million dollars you can't you have to make yeah, their movie yeah, absolutely again strings attached at every level yeah. yeah yeah um in terms of a weird spike lee movie that very few people seem to have seen did you ever see bamboozled no very, very interesting, very weird. And I would actually like to watch it again in this current moment um, because it it handles race in such an in-your-face way. But it was also um, the movie that he made when that first generation of prosumer digital video cameras was just hitting the market. And so um, there are scenes that are shot with you know 10 different cameras. It's not pretty to look at. Right. It is not, it's not going to win any awards for cinematography, but... Right. Um, but it's it's interesting for a whole host of reasons. Um, nice. And, and yeah, I think just sort of was came out was sort of below the radar. Um, so just to wrap us up here, what advice would you have for an aspiring filmmaker? Oh boy, an aspiring filmmaker. Um, well, going back to what I said at the beginning, I think filmmaking has become so much more democratic in that the equipment is available at a fairly affordable price point. If you can't own a DSLR, like you could make your first film. I, I, all right, one thing I would say is if you've never made a film before, do something short before you make your dream project because you learn from doing and work out some of those kinks and boy, do you learn in the edit. It doesn't matter if it's a fiction film or a documentary. In the documentary, you're very often putting the story together in the edit. In a fiction film, you can think you've hewed to your script perfectly, but you're going to have, you know, variations in, you know, technical problems and acting performances and all. Um, you will learn so much from editing your first project that do something small that you have not broken the bank on before you tackle something bigger. Um, find people you want to work with. Um, film, even at the micro crew level, which I'm working at, is a collaborative medium. And if you try to do everything yourself, um, in all likelihood, you can prove me wrong, but in all likelihood, you will suffer for that egotism. Um, and ask yourself why you're in it. Um, you know, I've run into people who say they want to be, be a filmmaker because they want to be famous. That's not, <laughs> that's, that's an end goal that has nothing to do with the creative process. No, no. <laughs> 
and and think about the films you like. You can I think you can learn so much without going to film school from just watching movies you really like and asking yourself why it is that you like them. You know, what is it about the storytelling style, um, the aesthetics, the cinematography, the editing, you know, what is it that you like that you can emulate if it's appropriate for the film that you're trying to make. Um, if there's a really powerful scene, watch that scene, really break it down, watch it over and over and over again. And there's so much free education that you can give yourself that way. There are books, there are autobiographies by filmmakers, there's commentary tracks. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a huge proponent of telling people to break the bank and go into debt for years by going to film school, because I think everything that I learned that I valued from film school was from working on sets while I was a film student. And it wasn't really that much in the classroom. I saw some yeah. movies I might not have otherwise, but it's one of the few, and I, I, I teach high school. So I, I, Sometimes we'll say, like, look, this is one of the few professions that you don't have to go to college for. You, you show up on a set. If you have half a brain and you are willing to show up on time and work hard, you can do very well. You make a very good living. I mean, if you join the union and things like that, you know, which is a different animal than right. freelance documentary. Yeah, and there, there are so many different paths that, you know, it's, it's good that I know you've spoken to other filmmakers and people who have production companies. Like I have a very small production company where I deliberately, I hire independent contractors as needed, but I have no full-time employees. Um, and so I'm speaking from a very different place from somebody who has a 10-person full-time staff um, or, or a much larger staff. Um, but, but the, you know, if you're working in any aspect of film, I would hope it's because it's what you love doing. And I think, you know, just try, try on a bunch of hats and see which one fits. And it's funny though, like working on like law and order, when you're working with the grips, they're not really there for the love of the creative process. <laughs> Most of these guys, are like, uh, 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 you know, it's, it's true, true. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm speaking too much from my micro little indie world. Um, yes, if yeah. like boneheads, the, the union guys are blocking up the Brooklyn Bridge hours yeah. before the crew arrives. Yes, they are not in it for the love of the art. <laughs> but I'm also, I'm also going to guess that they're not the ones who are listening to this part of the podcast. Probably not. Probably not. Probably not into the intricacies of the documentary film <laughs> world. But then you have people like uh, Chris Scarfile is very much a crossover, mm -hmm. you know, union rep for a long time, but is one of the few that I ever met that really aspired to be a, you know, cinematographer, yeah. camera operator. So you do, that. that is like him and maybe two other people I knew from the grip electric world, you know, the rest are there to, they earn a good paycheck, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, it's hard work. I mean, it's 12, 14, 16 hours a day sometimes, but um, yeah, I bill it as like, hey, look, it's hard to outsource. Technology has obviously affected it, digital and all that. I don't know what happened to focus pullers and loaders and and that whole group of people, but I don't know. I see DIT now. Yeah. In the crowds. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's you know it's interesting and and how the stop of work. It, I, I have a union cinematographer who lives right down the street from me. And, you know, he now I think he's sort of resigned to to whatever is happening due to the coronavirus. And it's just like, you know, it's beyond my control. Work will pick up again when it picks up again. Um, but I realized that by not being part of such a big machine, 
um, I'm much more adaptable to like, there are always like my life is made up of side gigs. <laughs> so right, right. <laughs> there, there's right. always like, people are like, could you do a virtual zoo? You know, if I was directing by zoom, could you shoot this interview? And I can. And so there's a way for me, I'm appreciative of the fact that even though I, I make a, um, I'm in a different income bracket from when I used to do commercial work. Right. I'm actually, I'm, I have more resources to draw upon when the bottom falls out. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Nara, this was great. Uh, excellent podcast. I know our listeners will learn a lot. Thanks so much for doing this. Well, great to see you. All I'll, right, I'll you too. person one of these days. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe I'll get down to New York when uh, things get a little... Yeah, where are you? I live outside of... I'm going to stop recording now. Uh, so okay. thank you to Nara and uh, keep listening, everybody. We'll be back at you real soon. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media and the Still Believe app, the only app that delivers video proof of the Tooth Fairy and Santa by simply taking a picture. Download the app at stillbelieve.co today and amaze your kids. And if you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build engage and entertain your audience reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com i would love to hear from you and that's it the end the sweet end until our next audio encounter